Well, let's start Numbers chapter 13 this morning. We started a series uh, some weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, on um, miracles, God and miracles. And we've talked a little bit about uh, the miracle of creation. We talked uh, a little bit about the, uh, the Exodus miracles. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about the miracles in the wilderness. Um, there are uh, a number of things that, um, that are referred to and, and the Bible tells, gives us record of that happened in the wilderness. We won't look at all of them, but we'll take a few of them and, and, uh, and see them. The, um, uh, to, to set the stage this morning, though, Numbers chapter 13 and 14 talk about how that Israel has been delivered from the bondage of Egypt and they come to the edge of the promised land. It's about two and a half years from the time that uh, the plagues first began in Egypt. And uh, according to the best estimates, we know how long it took them to get from uh, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea to, uh, to the promised land. We don't know exactly how long the, uh, uh, the, the plagues in Egypt took. The best estimates that I've seen are anywhere from one to six months. So we, uh, uh, we can understand, therefore, that it's been about two and a half years uh, from the time that the plagues first began when Moses first went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go to where they come to the edge of the promised land. During that time, they've received the Ten Commandments and, uh, and God has revealed himself to Israel in, um, uh, in great power and great uh, uh, with signs and wonders. Now, when they get to the, um, the, the promised land, you know the story about how the 12 spies go in and 10 of them come back with an evil report. Everything that God did in Egypt uh, at the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, which is the, the, uh, the foundation, really, for, uh, for the Jewish uh, belief, for Judaism, it's uh, there time and time and time again the, the Bible speaks of not only for their benefit but for us as an example of uh, an Old Testament example of what belongs to us in Christ. It speaks time and time again of what miracles God did in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and, and, and what great wonders God did to deliver his people. But please remember that God wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, his, his purpose wasn't just to do miracles. His purpose wasn't just to show how strong he is or how powerful he is. I think a lot of times people think that uh, uh, people in the church world have the idea that God uh, wants to show off. And if that were the case, he could do a lot more than what, what he does. I mean, God could do a miracle every day and then we'd take him for granted and, and wouldn't have the desired effect, I guess. But, um, uh, but God had something in mind. And, and the reason that he did the miracles was, uh, as we talked about a little bit last week, to exact judgment upon the gods of Egypt to prove to his people uh, who he was and, uh, and how much he cared for them and how much the covenant that he made with Abraham, their forefather, meant to him and to what lengths he was willing to go to keep it. But then when they get to the promised land... Uh, they rebel against God. Now, God's intent all along, as I said, was not just to do miracles, not just to deliver Egypt, but to deliver them for a purpose, to deliver them so that they could have the blessings of the promised land. Now, the Bible says that coming through the Red Sea is a type of salvation for us. God didn't save you just to leave you here. God saved you for a purpose, and that purpose was for you to walk in the promised land blessings. Now, well, I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but to take the promised land, we know that it took battles. They had to go to war. They had people to, de to defeat. There were people in that land. There were people, and, and God says that it was for a purpose. He didn't send them to a barren land, a land that had never been developed. He sent them to a good land that was flowing with milk and honey. Well, who made it the land of milk and honey? I mean, it wasn't just some uh, lost garden out there somewhere. Big enough for three or four million people. 
that nobody had ever discovered. It was a land that belonged to some other people. Now, I want to read some scriptures to you uh, to kind of give you the, the heads up on, uh, on what God had told Israel, Moses and therefore Israel, about the promised land before they ever left Egypt. In uh, Exodus chapter 3, when God's talking to Moses out of the burning bush, the Lord said, verses 7 and 8, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large and unto a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, I've got a big land for you, and it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Under the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, further in that, uh, uh, that uh, conversation God had with Moses at the burning bush, he said, go and gather the elders of Israel. This is verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob appeared unto me saying, I have surely visited you and is seen in that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt under the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites under a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses told Israel what God told him about whose land it was or who was in the land that belonged to them. Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. This is uh, at the, uh, when God's talking to Moses about what to tell the people about the Passover. The death of the firstborn is about to take place in Egypt. And Moses said unto the people, this is verses 3 through 5 of Exodus 13. Moses said unto the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord has brought you from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day you came out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A land flowing with milk and honey that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Now, further on, after um, Moses gives the the children of Israel the um, Ten Commandments, and they uh, sin against God with a golden calf and some of that kind of stuff. We'll talk about a little bit of that as we go. Uh, but further on in their wanderings, in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 23, here's what God says to Moses about taking the promised land. Behold, I sent an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee in the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not. For he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So we've got three times... That God says to Moses, the promised land is the land of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and whoever else I'm leaving out. So why then do we come to Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 through 29? 
They returned, talking about the 12 spies, they returned after, from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whether thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Now, Anak is not mentioned in any of the other lists that God spoke to Moses or Moses told the children of Israel about. So it's almost like they're saying, and we found some other people. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Siles. Know about them. And the Hittites, know about them. And the Jebusites, know about them. And the Amorites, we know about them, dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea, we know about them too. And by the coast of Jordan, Caleb stills the people before Moses and says, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. What does Caleb know that the other ten doesn't know? Or will the, uh, what does Caleb and Joshua know that the other ten spies do not know? This is what God intended all along. He's told us about all these people that are here. Why are you surprised? Shouldn't be a shock. We know that the adversaries are going to be there. God said that they were going to be there. And God said, this is the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why it's your land. So Caleb says, let's go do it. Verse 31. But the men that went up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Now I want you to look with me over to Numbers chapter 14, after the congregation. At this point it's just 10 to 2. Ten spies saying we can't do it. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb saying, yeah, we can do it. Don't worry about the people. God's with us. So the congregation still has their choice to make. In chapter 14, verse 1, the congregation makes their choice. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept all that night. Folks, I want you to understand something. Even though a good cry may make you feel better, a good cry can take you away from the things of God. Are you out there? Now, I know, the, I know the, the complaints. I know the arguments and the criticism. People say, Pastor Mike, that's easy for you to say. You don't have emotions. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I don't. And it's a great advantage. But notice the example in the Bible. Now, when uh, Caleb and Joshua aren't done, they still try to turn the people around. They say, don't rebel against God. Don't do this. Don't do this. In other words, it's not too late. At least it wasn't in their estimation. We can still make this work, but the, but the congregation says, no, 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 we're, we're done for. That's it. Now, skip down with me to verse 11 where, uh, well, one thing I, I guess I skipped over, I should say, is the people start saying, well, let's stone Moses. That'll help. Let's kill Moses. He's the one that brought us here. He's the one that's been doing the miracles by the hand of God. Let's kill him. 
And the glory of the Lord appears and, and, and prevents the people from getting to him and, and so forth. The, the implication is they would have if not for the, the separation that God makes by the glory cloud. But now notice verse 11. Now God's going to speak. Up to this point, God has been the one doing the miracles. God's been the one telling the people, here's what you're going to find when you come to the promised land. Don't worry about that. I'll take you. I'll cut these people off. This is your land. Now God speaks because the people rebel against him. And notice what he says in verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? Folks, I want you to understand something. Unbelief provokes God. To provoke is to take sides against. There's a lot of the church world that provokes God as a matter, as a course of life. To say that healing doesn't belong to us in the new birth or in the the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. If the Bible says that it is and does, then that's provoking God. To say that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for everybody if the Bible says that it is, is to provoke God. To say, I can't do it, Lord, when the Lord is saying, go do it, is to provoke God. I hate to state the obvious here, but I think it's important to do so. It's just better off to go with whatever God says do. It's just better to accept whatever God says is yours. That's what they did not do. It would have been fine for them to cry and say, oh, wow, this looks tough, Lord. Are you sure you're with us on this? Yeah, don't worry. I'll take you through. But they let their emotions, they let their feelings turn them away from what God said. So God says, how long will these people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me? Now, what reason would they have to believe God? Notice what he says. How long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed unto them? Do you understand that the reason for the miracles is for the people to believe God? Skip with me over to verse uh, 21. God says, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Here's an eternal ordinance that God establishes. In other words, it doesn't matter what's happening, what does happen, what somebody plans, what somebody doesn't do. This is the way it's going to be. It's an eternal, unchanging declaration. God says, as truly as I live. Anytime you find in the Bible where God says, as truly as I live, he's not just saying, now listen up, this is the way it's going to be. He's saying, just as sure as my life is. And folks, there is nothing more sure than the life of God, the existence of God. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. We haven't gotten there yet. We've still got some good things ahead then. Because, verse 22, because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But then he says, Caleb and Joshua, they'll go in because they believe me. Now here's what I want you to see. The whole purpose for the miracles was so that the people would believe God and hearken to his word. 
The reason we have a record of, of these t- miracles, these things that t- took place, is so that you and I would believe God and hearken to his word. It's not so that God should just put on a show. There may be times where God puts on the show. The Bible says he's going to put on the show throughout eternity. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds like a good, good event. So there may be times where God displays his power. But these that the, that the Bible says specifically about Egypt and some of the things in the wilderness were so that the people would believe him. You know, it's an interesting thing because so many people say, well, if, only I, if I could only see a miracle, I'd believe. If God had just shown me a miracle, then I'd believe. God showed a lot of people miracles and they didn't believe. So the idea that a miracle will automatically make everybody believe is disproven specifically and clearly by the scripture. So there are two reasons, really two reasons. It's really part of the same one, but I'll separate them for distinction to, to make a distinction. There are two reasons that God did the miracles in the Old Testament, the miracles of Exodus and the miracles of the wilderness, to make them believe his word or to give them opportunity to believe his word. Same reason God does miracles, same reason we have record of miracles in the scripture, same reason God works in his power, mighty power today, is so that we'll believe and hearken to his word. Now, the second one, I'm not going to ask you to turn over here with me, but the second one is identified in Exodus chapter 13 when they come out of Egypt and start going toward and and through, as we know, the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, it says this, And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. He didn't take them the short route, didn't take them the most direct route, didn't even take them the easier route. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war. They go through the land of the Philistines, they're going to have to fight. And they're not ready to fight yet. Lest the people peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Now folks, here's what I want you to get. And that is, God led the people through the wilderness the way that he did and showed them the things that he did to prepare them for war. Now, why do they need to be prepared for war? Because to take the promised land, they're going to have to defeat their enemies. So everything about the miracles, everything about the, 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 the wilderness experience, everything about what God did and how he did it, what he showed them, what he said to them is all designed to get them ready by believing him and hearkening to his word to get them ready for war. What is God's plan for you? Whether you know it or not, you're in a war. Paul talked about being strong in the Lord and the power of his might by putting on the armor of God. That's military armor. Paul told Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier. Folks, you're in a fight. It's a faith fight. It's not a fight against flesh and blood. We don't have natural enemies, although people may set themselves as enemies against us. But our enemy is a spiritual enemy. And you fight that spiritual enemy with spiritual weapons by believing in God and hearkening to his word. But then you're still supposed to be ready for the fight. I used to have a a basketball coach in uh, uh, junior high. And he used to, he was a military guy. And man, he would make us mad. 
He was tough on us, and he'd make us mad, and we'd get out there, and here we are, little 13, 14, 15-year-old kids, whatever we were in junior high school, whatever age that is. Here we are, we're just busting a gut trying to do what we can and, and not measuring up to what he wants us to do, and, and every time we thought we did good, he'd make us do something even harder and so forth, and, and, and there were times where there were kids that would just start crying out there, you know. Wouldn't want anybody to see it. They'd call it sweat, but they were crying. And this guy, instead of having compassion on us, he'd stand up and say, Oh, did somebody hurt your feelings? And make us work even harder. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought about that and had those ears, those words ringing in my ears. Oh, did somebody hurt your feelings? Because that's exactly why we get out of the fight. That's exactly why we turn around. That's exactly why we turn loose of the word. That's exactly why we take what the word says and come up with, I just don't know how I'm going to make it. Somebody hurts our feelings. No wonder God told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Because somebody's going to hurt your feelings. Everything about God showing his power, everything about God showing his miracles, everything about God doing great works, both in your life and in the scriptures that's recorded for us, is for you to understand who he is so you can take him at his word. There's nothing more important than taking God at his word. And there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be problems, there's going to be things that are standing in your way. There are going to be people that hurt your feelings along the way. Bless our darling hearts. And that's the point right there where a lot of people just quit. Well, Lord, I just don't know why this happened. Because people are stupid. People are hurtful. People are people. People need Jesus. What do you expect them to act like? Are you out there? God had two purposes for the things that he showed Israel. Number one, and he didn't take them the easy way because that would have been, don't you know that when they started off on the way of the Philistines, that was the easy road. That was the, the, the uh, they didn't have to go any, through any mountains, through any mountain passes or anything like that. That would have been the place for them to say, wow, this is great. Wide road. Somebody's done a good job with this road. Well, that somebody's about to come down on you. But somebody's the Philistines. So God said, I'm not going to take you that way. I'm going to take you the hard way. Why? Because I've got to get you ready for war. Because you're going to have a war, several of them, when you get to the promised land. And Israel missed it completely. They didn't even take the instruction, the hardness of the way that they went. They didn't take the miracles that were done before them and understand this is a God we can trust. He's really on our side. We haven't even talked about all the things he's done yet. All the things, only things we've uh, referred to so far are the ones that they saw in Egypt. But for the last two years, maybe two, almost two and a half years, God's been doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle to show them. And they get to the promised land and they say, there are people that live there. When God told them all the way through. Yeah, there are people that live there. They've been taking care of your land for you. 
they got their feelings hurt. They looked at that wall, probably saw the wall around Jericho and said, oh, that's a huge wall. It's tall. I wonder if it was taller than the Red Sea was deep. See, Caleb and Joshua looked at that wall and said, there's a place for us to go through on dry ground. Saw the same thing. Caleb and Joshua saw the same thing that the other ten saw. And they got it. They were ready. See, folks, it's not a matter of circumstance that makes you ready. It's a matter of character. It's an inward something, not an outward something. You're looking for something on the outside to make you strong? Forget it. It's an inward strength, inward character, inward conviction. Now, what's funny about this uh, to me is that after Moses relays the story that God tells, we didn't finish reading it, and, and I'll take for granted that you know the end of the story. God said, I'll deal with them according to their words. Matter of fact, I need to read verse uh, 28, I guess, since we're here. Verse 28, God said, tell, Moses, tell the people this. Say unto them, as truly as I live. Here's that phrase again, as truly as I live. That means it's an unchanging eternal ordinance of God he's establishing something that'll be this way forever because that's how God lives he lives forever here's an everlasting eternal unchanging law of God say unto them as truly as I live as you have spoken in my ears so will I do unto you you know how faith is what is what it is and works the way that it does believing in the heart and saying with the mouth because it's an unchanging law of God that God deals with you according to your words now, you can be part of the church world that complains about that. You can make fun of it. You can ridicule it. You can, you can call us names for, for believing it. You can do anything you want to do with that, but it never will change. God will deal with you according to your words. And all this stuff you hear in the church world about, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him why he let this happen to me. He's going to play back their own words. And he's going to say, didn't you read in my word that the unchanging eternal law of God is I will deal with you according to what you've spoken in my ears. Some people will say, well, I never saw that. And God will say, yeah, unfortunately, I do have some idiot children. Because it's been there all along and people were preaching it. So God then tells them what the result will be. Since I will deal with you according to what you've spoken in my ears, you said, oh, if we would die in Egypt. Well, you're already out of Egypt. That's too late to fulfill, to fulfill. Pharaoh and his armies are dead. There's nobody to take you back to in Egypt to enslave you. But then they said, or rather that we had died in the wilderness. That's not too late. And that's exactly what happened. God said, tell them that they'll spend one year for every day that the 12 spies were in, Israel, uh, were in the promised land, spying out the land. Forty years in the wilderness. Everybody from the age of 20 and up. Now, they count those people. God instructs Moses to count the people. The, the number of men from the age of 20 and up at this point in time would have been 603,550 men. So he's just told them. Now, it's not just the men that die. 
It's everybody. We don't know how many women and children there were. Most of the estimates are between 2 to 3 million people came out of Egypt through the Red Sea. I've seen estimates as high as 5 and 7 million, but there's no way to really tell. They're just uh, going from that number of 603,550 men from age 20 up and trying to extrapolate what the the family sizes would have been and, and things like that to come up with a number. So all those men die with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. So 603,548 men die in the wilderness along with everybody else that's 20 years of age and up. Now, when the people hear that, they say, oh, no, that's terrible. We'll believe. We'll believe. And they go out the next morning to take the land. Moses tells them not to do it. This is in the last part of chapter 14. Moses said, what are you going out for? Don't do that. God's not with you. Your enemies will defeat you. And they said, no, no, no. We want to believe God now. So they go out and the enemies defeat them. The Amorites, I think it was, are the ones that rise up against them and just whip them roundly. And that's so much what people do. They come to the point, they reject the word, they refuse to operate on the word, they refuse to believe in God and refuse in the, the, the inerrancy of his word, the absolute inability that God has, the impossibility that God can ever break his word. And then when they find out that it's a real bad thing if they don't, Then they say, oh, we'll believe. And they're just like Israel going against the Amorites after God said, no, you had your chance. Many Christians die sick because they wait too late. It's not because God wants them to die sick. It's not because sickness or disease is from God. It's not. But God gives each of us an instruction manual. For how to walk in health, how to abide in health, and how to receive the power of God in our lives. And it's full of illustrations of what God did in the past. For people just like you and me. So those were the reasons that God did the miracles that he did in Egypt and in the wilderness. Now let's look at a few of them. We won't, uh, I don't have time to go through all of them this morning. But let's look at a few of the, the wilderness miracles. There are two main categories of the wilderness miracles. Uh, One was provision, the other is protection. The first one we'll make mention of is in Exodus chapter 13. This is one you know about. One of the first things that happened after Pharaoh said, okay, go take your people and go get out of my land, was that it says that the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud led the people out of Egypt to the edge of the Red Sea. And then when Pharaoh changed his his heart changed and he decided I'm going to kill these people after all, he came down on then the the pillar went before them instead of where it was in front of them they were following it. Now it went behind them to separate them from the chariots of Pharaoh and his army. They went over to the Red Sea on dry ground. And uh, and from that point on they had the pillar of fire and the and the, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of uh, cloud during the day. Now it's the language is kind of unclear. We don't know for, exa- for, for sure whether the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud was there all the time until the tabernacle in the wilderness was built. But at that point, we know for sure that it was there all the time. It was something they saw day after day after day. Now, the Bible, it could be that they saw it from the time that they came out of Egypt all the way through. But we don't know for sure. So either way you want to look at that, either way you want to consider that, then, uh, then so be it. Um, 
But it mentions it three times, Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22. Exodus 14, this is when it goes behind him to separate him from Pharaoh's army, verse 19, 14, 19. And then in chapter 40, in verses 34 through 38, when the tabernacle of the wilderness is built according to God's instruction, that's when the pillar of fire comes and, and abides there all the time. That was the signal for Israel whether to stay camped or, or leave. When it starts moving, they moved to, went with it. They broke camp and went with it. When it stayed put, they stayed put. And so they had something. They had visible evidence for, uh, for the majority, if not every day, of the time that they left Egypt. Visible evidence. Now, what does this correspond to? What is it that we're supposed to believe? Remember, everything about the miracles is so that we believe God and hearken to his word. And be prepared for war, prepared for the enemy that, uh, that sets himself against us just like it, they did them. What are we supposed to learn from this? Well, remember over in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, Paul, I believe, is the author of the book of Hebrews. But whoever is the writer is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say, to write this. He says, let your conversation, literally manner of life, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say. In other words, the knowledge that God will never leave you nor forsake you. His promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Whether you can see him or not. Is to, to instill us or create a boldness in us. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Folks, you need to understand something. No matter what comes against you. No matter who tries to hurt your feelings. No matter what the devil throws against you. That which is of God will stand. Hopefully that includes you. If you're standing on his word, you will stand. We get upset. Well, but God, I, I just don't understand why this is happening. Now it looks like things are going to get torn up. Well, what's, whatever is of God will stand. God doesn't need you to protect his stuff. He's well enough to take care of himself. He was taking care of himself before you ever came along. He was taking care of himself before he ever made Adam. He doesn't need his created man to keep his things going. He's well able to handle his own business. But bless our hearts, we think we're so important. Oh, we've got to do this. If it's not just done in a certain way, if we don't get it done just right, if people don't treat us just right while we're doing it, oh, what a terrible result there'll be. God will survive. Are you out there? So they had visible evidence. Day after day. They saw the pillar of fire. At night. All they had to do is look out their tent. They could see that pillar of fire. That's pretty good evidence God is on your side. Pretty good evidence God is with you. Now the Bible says we've got evidence too. The Bible says we know we pass from death to life. Meaning God's on the inside of us because we love the brethren. Now, I know for some people that's a hard sign to find because they don't develop in love. But the more you develop in love, the more sure you can be every day of your life, every moment of every day of your life, that God is with you and therefore he's on your side. He's never against the people he's with. So if he's with you, he's on your side. If he's on your side, he'll put you over in every situation. The Bible says the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, the first evidence, the first part of the harvest that we'll have because we're in Christ. 
you have proof that God is with you, therefore with you and in you, and therefore he's on your side. No wonder Paul said things like, the Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? Now, he learned that through some experience. He learned that through some hard places. He learned that through some people trying to do some really bad stuff to him. But that's where he came to. Apparently, the power of God was sufficient in Paul's life to prove him to him that God was with him, worthy to be trusted, and therefore prepared him for war. And he's the one that wrote to us and said, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. I'm pretty well convinced God does not want a weak family. Okay, let's look at another one. Look with me to uh, Exodus chapter 15. This is pretty close to right after, soon after, Israel comes through the Red Sea. They come to a place called Marah. Let's start reading verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. That's what Marah means. It means bitter or bitterness. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them. The statutes and ordinances are laws. They're unchanging things. So here God must have inspired Moses to give them a statute and ordinance. We don't have where God says as truly as I live, this is the way it is, but it's the same effect. There he gave them a statute and an ordinance and he proved them. What is the statute and ordinance? First of all, let me talk about the type. The type is the tree, meaning the, the tree uh, signifies the tree that Jesus was crucified on. You remember Galatians chapter 3? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, verse 13, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. The tree is, is the cross that they use. We, we think of the cross as being this, you know, machine uh, hewn timber and all that kind of stuff, but it was just a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. Now, this tree symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus. It symbolizes, the, the water symbolizes mankind. When Jesus was cast into the waters, it made the water sweet. Now, you can look at that one of two ways. You can look at that either through salvation, that he did away with sin, but they've already passed through that which represents salvation. So it could mean something else. It could mean Jesus being cast into the, the crucifixion, or the results of the crucifixion, the benefits, the benefits of the crucifixion being cast into the, to the sea of those people of God, meaning the blessings of God. Either way, it results in healing. Because here's the ordinance, verse 26. Here's the ordinance that Moses made with the people. He said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments, keep his word. If you'll keep his word, if you'll put the word first, if you'll be diligent to live by the word, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now this is one of those uh, permissive words, permissive tense verbs that's translated in the causative, I will put. It's an allowance. It's not a, causative, a causation. 
God is simply saying this. I will not allow sickness and disease upon you which came upon the Egyptians. Why did it come upon the Egyptians? Because they worship false gods. But now notice he references the, the, the sicknesses of the Egyptians. Why would he do that? Why do they care about sickness of, of Egypt? Why would they care about things that exist there? Why wouldn't they be concerned about the sicknesses of the land that they're going to? Well, you remember over in Psalm 105, verse 37, it says that uh, uh, David was speaking of uh, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. He said, he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. Can I ask you a question? How do you get three to f- two to three million people, and there's nobody weak or sickly or feeble among them? I mean, the law of averages is going to do you in. You got old people. You got people that, are being, that have been slaves for 400 years. Slaves are usually not the ones in the best health. So how is it that the Bible says that God brought them forth with silver and gold? We understand that. They spoiled the Egypt and barred, uh, asked for jewels and gold and stuff like that. We know how that part worked. But what about the other part? There was not one feeble among them. What caused Israel to be such a band of people, such a large number of people, with any sickness or disease among them? The answer is that the Passover was for the healing of the body. Just like it is now. You remember the Passover, the Bible says Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. The Bible tells us that the Passover, meaning the, uh, uh, the elements, the bread and the wine that are used in the Passover, were used for, by Israel in the Passover, symbolized the body and the blood of Jesus. That's why the blood on the doorpost was necessary, and that's why it was necessary for them to eat the lamb and not leave any leftovers the next morning. Eat all of it. It says in the King James that it, the eating of the meat was for the strength of their journey. Well, if you're sick, what's going to strengthen you for your journey? Healing. So the fact that Moses references the diseases of Egypt, they know that before the Passover they were sick, after the Passover they weren't sick, at least for some of them. Before the Passover they were weak, after the Passover they were strong. What in the world happened here? Now God is saying, I will not allow the sicknesses upon you that came upon Egypt and even affected you before you knew who I was when you were living in Egypt. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. The word healeth, there's no way to tell what tense it should be in. It could be that this is saying, for I am the Lord that healed you in the Passover. It could be, and most probably is something, because it's vague and ambiguous, it probably means not only did I heal you then, but I'll heal you today and I'll heal you forever. Which is why the translators translated healeth, continuous action. I will not allow the sicknesses upon you that came upon you in Egypt, for I am the Lord that healed you. I healed you then and I'll heal you now. And all because of obeying and keeping the word. Now, if that's a statute and ordinance, that doesn't change. Just because we're under a new covenant, just because we're not under the law of Moses anymore, which at that point they hadn't even gotten, you can't say that that was just an Old Testament promise. God says it's a statute and ordinance. It's this way forever. Not forever until the law is fulfilled, but forever. They didn't have the Ten Commandments yet. They didn't have anything yet. Yet they're commanded to keep the law. They're commanded to keep the word of God, to be diligent, to keep his commandments. What are they? They don't know yet. So whatever the commandments are, 
And you can't say that the law of Moses, because the statute and the ordinance was before the law was given. Whatever the commandments are at that point in time, they're obliged to keep them. Whatever the commandments are at this point in time, we're obliged to keep them if we want the same promise, with the same blessing, the same result. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know you are my disciples. Why? Because as you walk in love, you walk in health. Skip with me over to chapter 16 now. Chapter 16, verses uh, well, let's start in verse 1. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin. That's aptly named. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after the departing from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Didn't take them long. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Now this is way before, a couple of years before. They say the same thing at the, at the edge of the promised land. They've seen the, the plagues. They were separated from Egypt from the plagues. They were delivered from Egypt on dry ground. They saw Pharaoh and his chariots destroyed. The, the greatest army, the superpower, the world's superpower destroyed. And nobody had to fire a shot so to speak. And now they're complaining. Oh, if only we could go back into slavery. It's amazing how people choose slavery. You've got the same thing in the church world now. People want laws and rules to keep. That's why it's so easy to take the denominational position. Well, God's in control of everything. Whatever will be, will be. Because God's sovereign. And so whatever happens is the sovereignty of God. We can't fight against it. We don't have any responsibility. We're just left down here at the mercy of a God that you can't figure out. Bless his holy name. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Folks, you know where that is in the Bible, don't you? Job said that. Just before God showed up and said, Job, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Might be good for you to close your mouth. But it's there. It's correctly recorded that Job said it. And so what do people say? Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Do you know what that implies? That implies I'm righteous and God's not. Which is exactly what got Job in trouble. That was the place where Job sinned. Job was doing fine. Even when the devil was attacking him, Job was fine until he opened his mouth and said, God's done me wrong. I'm righteous and God's done me wrong. And God lets that go for a while and he shows up and says, okay, big boy. Tell me how great you are. So it's so easy. It's so easy to go from faith. It's so easy to go from the responsibility of taking the word of God, choosing to believe it, confessing it, and standing strong in the face of adversity and con- uh, contradicting circumstances. It's so easy to go back instead And say, well, just whatever God wants is what's going to happen. Okay. You'll find out that apparently whatever God wants 
is not good stuff. Because God doesn't deal with people that believe whatever God wants is going to happen. God deals with you according to the unchanging eternal law. I'll deal with you according to the words that you've spoken. And what does the church world do? The church world speaks against God. God caused this tragedy. We don't understand, but he's got a greater purpose in it. God brought this sickness upon me because he's trying to teach me something. Well, then why are you going to the doctor trying to get rid of it? If God gave it to you, shouldn't you be praying for a double dose? It's so stupid. It makes no sense whatsoever. But people choose to go under bondage. They choose to go under the set of rules and, and, and regulations. To where it's all about what somebody else does. So that they're the ones with the responsibility and not me. That's what Israel's doing here. The creator of the universe just delivered us. But oh if only we could go back to Egypt. The God that obviously has control over nature said that we have a good land, a promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey, but oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. Because we liked it so much there. Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full, for you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Yeah, God needed to bring you all the way out here to kill you, didn't he? Now, here's God's answer, verse 4. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for, your, for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. Please notice, the manna was given in the way that it was given so that God would see who would follow him and obey him and keep his word. What do you think the word's given for today? Every scripture is a test, folks. Oh, no, Pastor Mike, the Bible says God doesn't test or tempt you. No, the Bible says God tempts no man with evil. It doesn't say God doesn't test you. Every scripture is a test. Designed to see who's going to follow him, who's going to believe his word. Why? Because God's trying to get you ready for war. There's a real enemy out there. Whether you ever acknowledge him or not, we do have an enemy. And God has equipped you and prepared you, if you'll accept the training, to overcoming and overcome him, your enemy, in every situation. So God said, I'll give bread for manna, or what's called manna. By the way, do you know what manna means? Manna means, I don't know what that is. I'm serious. Manna means, I don't know what that is. So God gave them bread and they called it, I don't know what that is. What are you eating? I don't know what that is. I see you've got a jar full of stuff. What is that? I don't know what that is. That's what manna means. There was nothing like it ever seen or known before or since. God created something new for his people. You talk about a miracle. He makes it out of dew. The dew comes on the ground. It's wet. It's water. When it dries, it's I don't know what that is. (laughs) 
He gives the instruction for how it's supposed to work. Verses 13 and 18, through 18. It came to pass that evening, the, even the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, there was on the face of the wilderness, there lay the small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. I want you to notice, Moses doesn't know how to describe it. Moses is using these, these scriptures are God dictating to Moses what to say. And this is how it's described. A small round thing as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. In other words, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is, I don't know what that is. <laughs> For they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating. An omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take you every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. Please notice there's another miracle that's going to take place here. Not just the miracle of the quails coming up and feeding the flesh. Not just the miracle of the manna that comes and is made out of the dew, the drying of the dew. But there's another miracle that takes place. Some gathered more and some gathered less. And when they and when they did meet or measure it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing left over. And he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. Please understand what's happening. They're going out, not with these jars, omers, but they're going out with little sacks or, or cloths or something like that, and they're gathering this stuff into the into the cloth. Now when they get back to their tents, then they measure it out into this stuff if they got two omers worth in their sack then half of it disappears if somebody gathers half an omers worth of stuff by the time they get back to the tent and put it in the jar then it multiplies god made sure that everybody had exactly the same amount every day and he commanded them don't take but one day's worth except on the sixth day take enough for two days and that'll cover you on the Sabbath. God's trying to teach them, I'll take care of you day by day. Don't worry about not having enough. Don't worry about what you're going to do with the leftovers. I'll make sure you have what you need. Now, without talking about this any further, I want to show you the next one. Notice in Exodus chapter 17, <clears throat> verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. We've seen them having water trouble before. Now, the water trouble they had before, there was not an absence of water. There were bitter waters. Now, there's discrepancy between whether the bitterness meant poisonous or, or whatever, but I don't really think so. I think it was just kind of sulfur-type water. It just tasted bad. And Jesus was the type that healed the waters, so to speak. When the tree was thrown in, the type of Jesus healed the waters. But here there is no water. Wherefore, verse 2, the people did chide with Moses. Here's the fix for everything. Complained to Moses. And said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses. And said, wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? 
And folks, I got to tell you, you, got, you need to realize what a great guy Moses was. Because sooner or later, for me, it would be really soon. <laughs> sooner or later, I would have stepped back and said, okay, God, I talked to you out of this before, but have Adam. Wipe him out. But he never does. And Moses cried, verse 4, unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. One of the things Moses has to learn, and he hasn't yet gotten there yet, but he learns through the protection of God, through the miracles that God does in the wilderness, that nobody can kill him. Right now, he doesn't seem to be convinced. He said, They're ready to stone me, Lord. What do we do? And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, the Nile River. And take it in your hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, Moses says basically the same thing many, many chapters later. Moses says to the Lord, You're either with me or you're not. He doesn't say it uses exactly the same words, but his attitude is totally different. They're saying, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? And God considered that to be provoking. I wonder what he considers that being said nowadays. If we say that, what are we going to do now? I wonder what he considers that to be today. I'm sure he's changed. I mean, we've got some problems with Scripture, which says God never changes. But, you know, outside of that, what do you think he considers it to be today? What do you think he considers it to be when we look at our situation and say, oh, no, this is hopeless? Really? Now, let me give you some information. As I said, most of the estimates are... um, um, Well, let me... I've got to give you the type before I do that. I'm getting ahead of myself. The type of Christ, the, the, the rock that was smitten is a type of Christ. You remember in Isaiah 53, 4, it says, We esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus said about water, himself and water, John 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus answered the woman at the well of Samaria and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So all three of these that we've seen... The, uh, the healing of the water in Mara, the manna and the quail in the wilderness, and then now the water coming from the rock. All of those are types of Jesus. Jesus said to himself, I'm the bread of life. He even used that example one time. He says, as Moses gave you bread in the wilderness, even so God has given you me, which I, I'm the bread of life. He uses this very example. Now, you need to understand something. Let's talk logistics for just a minute to give you the, the, the real picture of what's going on. Two to three million people is the estimate of the size of the the crowd that came out of Egypt, conservatively. 
It, I've seen as much as five. I've seen as much as seven million. But I don't know how you can really support that. But the, but the two to three million is easily, easily, easily supported by the number of men that were age 20 and older. Now, two to three million. Well, let me just tell you this. Chicago is 2.7 million people. So we're talking about feeding a crowd of people the size of Chicago. Now, according to the army who went to the Middle East and Desert Storm and stuff like that, the quartermaster general and so forth, they have to do all these logistics about feeding and transporting and, and, and so forth with soldiers. These are their statistics. An army that size would take 1,500 tons of food a day. Do you know how much that is? That's two freight trains a mile long each. It's 68 semi-truckfuls of food. So imagine going down the road and seeing a convoy of 68 semis. That's a daily provision. It would take 4,000 tons of wood to cook the food each day. That's 182 semis or five-mile-long freight trains. It would take 11 million gallons of water for the for the drinking and and washing and so forth cleaning and so forth that would be 500,000 semi truck full tankers what about camping camping grounds chicago like i said is the, is an equivalent size 2.7 million people the square mileage of of uh, the area of chicago is 20, 227 Square miles. Well, they didn't have high-rise tents. And so it's estimated that with the animals and everything, the, the camping grounds that would be necessary and needed would be 750 square miles, which is about half the size of Rhode Island. Folks, that's just a stop. So when we talk about these things, when we realize that God's providing food for them daily, he's providing water from the, from the rock. He's not talking about a little stream coming out of a rock. This was a gushing river. And there had to be some place for the river to be, the water that came out of the rock, the river of water to be collected so that the people could drink. Now this is the logistics. This is what God is showing them day after day after day after day in the middle of a desert Now, why is that? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33? Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. 
For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If God can provide 68 truckfuls of, I don't know what that is, every day, and enough water for the city of Chicago to drink and utilize for normal chores and things like that, why are we concerned about God being able to help us with our rent? And folks, you need to understand, that's what these miracles are for. These miracles are not just Sunday school stories. These miracles are so that we would see this is who God is. This is how he proved himself and showed his people, those who were heirs of the covenant, just like you. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs of the covenant. Heirs of the promise. Just the same as he honored his covenant with Abraham by providing all this, which is logistically impossible. God will take care of you. Now, we look back at them, we think, I can't believe they didn't believe. What in the world was wrong with these people? But how many times has God told you he'd see you through? And yet we get our feelings hurt. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it's hard. Okay. Well, let me suggest something to you. Kill Moses. That was always their answer. It's Moses' fault. And God came through time after time after time. Now, these are the things. We'll stop here. Uh, there's, uh, there's four or five more that I want to get to, but we'll cover those next week. But these are the very things that God is saying in Numbers chapter 14. How long will it be before these people believe me? What's it going to take for these people to hearken unto my voice? That's a great question for us to ask ourselves. That's a great question to consider. What's it going to take for me? What's it going to take for me to realize God is on my side, therefore he'll see me through? It may look like the wall of Jericho. It may look even bigger than that. It may look like there's no way to make it out of this desert. It may look like there's nothing for me to eat. There's no way for me to be provided for. There's no way out but God. That's what this is for, folks. And I've got some other news for you. God didn't run out of miracles. This just simply shows who he is and what he'll do. What will he do for you then? Whatever it takes. Let me close with John chapter 14. I want you to see this again. We may use this verse of scripture to close every one of these services, but I think it applies and fits here. John chapter 14, Jesus said in verses 13 and 14, And whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask is to call for, to require, or demand. He's literally talking about your speech. He's talking about the words that you use and not a request that you're making of God. Remember the unchanging law in Numbers chapter 14, verse 28? As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. Jesus is saying the same thing in John 14, verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask, speak in my name, in other words. That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you shall ask, speak anything in my name, I will do it. I've made this comment before, but I think it bears repetition, and that is uh, Brother Hagin told us about when he was um, a younger minister. He was around, had the opportunity to be around uh, P.C. Nelson, which was the Greek, the foremost Greek scholar in his day in the world uh, when he was alive. And somebody asked him about this verse of Scripture. What does that really mean? And Dr. Nelson said this. He was reading from the Greek Testament. And uh, so he told him, he said, here's what that means. When God said, if you ask anything, if you call for a required demand, anything in my name, I'll do it. He said, it means this. If I don't have it, I'll make it. Folks, that's what God did with manna. He made something he didn't have. He made something that didn't exist. He made something that was unknown to mankind. Then and now. So much so that they had to call it, I don't know what that is. I don't really care what you call what God needs to do for me. I'll call everything, I don't know what that is. But that's how willing God is to see you through. Psalm 77 verse 14 says, Thou art the God that doeth miracles. That's who your father is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you are the God of miracles. Thank you that there's nothing that's too hard for you. And thank you that whatever we call for, require, place a demand on in your name, you will do it. Lord, you know the needs that are represented in this room. You know some people are facing what looks to them to be impossible situations. But there's nothing that's too hard for you. I thank you, Father, that according to their faith, in your word, in your past works, expressed by the words of their mouth, according to their faith, it shall be unto them. Therefore, Father, we speak provision. We speak healing. We speak more than enough. We speak life and peace. We speak the return of loved ones to you and to your plan for their lives. Oh, Father, thank you that whatever you have to make for us to put us over, you will do it and you'll do it with ease. In Jesus' precious name, we worship you, Father, and we thank you for your goodness. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Let's say this together. Let's, uh, let's dismiss by saying this, make this confession. Say this after me. The miracle-working God is my Father. And he cares for me. He'll use any and every bit of his power for me if necessary. He's on my side. He's always with me. He never leaves me. Therefore, I always win. He always puts me over. He's made me more than a conqueror. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. The devil and his trouble, even my faith. I believe God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.